Welcome! You are listening to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. We are a horror podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together into beautiful and also very disturbing harmony. I am Alexandria Youngray, and my beautiful co-host is Sunshine Bellon. Sup, baby? Hey. <laughs> oh, God. God, hi, it's trigger warning time. This story sucks 82 buttholes. Possibly 85. Like, I I feel, yeah, no, I feel uncomfortable making jokes. Okay, so legitimately I was was up last night and I was having trouble sleeping because I was so anxious. About recording today. It's so triggering. This story sucks. So it's it's interesting. Like, don't stop listening if you want to hear it. Because it's a good story? Good? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. How do you even define good? Anyway, it's a story important. that's interesting. It's important. It is an important story. And educational. Helps educational. you understand, like, why things are the way that they are and how yeah. things came to be, which is necessary. Yeah. There's just so much suck. So, I'm sorry. This is going to be all about, you know, crimes against children and child sexual assault and... Sorry, guys. (laughs) Well, basically, I've been fascinated by the sex offender registry for a really long time, so I decided I wanted to do the stories behind the sex offender registry. Well, if anyone can cover it with tact and respect, I trust that we can. I hope. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's more faith than most people would put in me. (laughs) Well, for as offensive as you can unintentionally be, You are capable of being tactful when it matters. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) I am really unintentionally offensive as fuck. But I don't really mean to cause anyone hurt feelings. I just, I don't know, say things. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah. But I try to be tactful when it comes to covering really shitty stuff. And this is one of those really shitty stuffs. So we'll try to continue to be entertaining, but we're also going to be covering shitty stuffs. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for the worst story? (sighs) I'm prepared. I actually spent um, the last probably like two hours while I was like, you know, hanging out and making dinner and all of that watching Adventure Time. So that you could like... So I'd have like feel goods built up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a podcast that I listen to that specifically tells you to get drunk and high before they're, like, more intense episodes. I- I- I don't think that's a good idea. No, I don't think that's a good idea either. Um, yeah. Don't- don't get drunk or high before this. I would suggest get, like, a cup of hot cocoa and, like- A teddy bear, maybe? A, yeah. And then, like, have something funny to put on after this. <laughs> Jeez. All right. We might be scaring people off at this point. Uh, Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. So we're talking about Jacob Wetterling, which is not the first story 
in, you know, like crimes against children that were sensational or caused laws. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's the first story that created the first sex offender registry law. Okay. So that's why we're starting with it. That makes sense. Because you got to start somewhere. Well, it's, I mean, the straw that broke the camel's back case seems like a good place to start. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so, so let's start. Tell let's me start. this. Tell me the story. Yeah. Okay. So to begin, I'm just gonna let everybody know. And I mean, look, if you're capable of googling this, you know, I got ninety percent, ninety five percent of my research from In the Dark podcast and APM reports. They did a really really broad and in-depth and just full cover of the Jacob Wetterling story. Mm -hmm. They did an amazing job. It's like a nine or ten part series. It's beautiful. It's very well done. And I am not trying to recreate that. I'm not trying to be that. It's just that this is an important part of the broader story that I want to tell. And so I got a lot of my (laughs) research from them. So that's my research, Holla. Way to cite your sources, Alex. Good on you. This is me citing my sources. Um, I also want to, like, okay, so shout out section. I want to shout out, so I hit up a couple of my lawyer friends because, yeah, I'm a lawyer, but, like, I'm a baby lawyer. I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And I just want to shout out um, Kate and Rhiannon, who are respectively defense and prosecution attorneys. And I asked them some questions kind of out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And they were really patient with me and explaining stuff. Oh, how nice. So I just want to shout out my lawyer buddies that helped me. Okay. Anyway. Tell me about Mr. Sir Young Lad, Jacob Wetterling. All right. So, Jacob Wetterling, he was born February 17th, 1978. Mm -hmm. So, at the time this story takes place, he would have been 11 and in sixth grade. Okay. So, he was a kind child. He was passionate and happy. Like, that's what his friends said. That's what his parents said. Mm -hmm. That's what his family says. You know, happy child. Good, good soul, you know? Yeah. He was an animal lover, which, you know, of course I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everyone he loved football. That. He loved steak. You know, he was just a kid. He's just a kid. He had an older sister, Amy. He had a younger brother, Trevor, and the youngest sister, Carmen. And I've got that picture. Oh, that's that I, them with Mickey Mouse. Isn't that cute? Yeah, it's way cute. Yeah. So, uh, his parents were Jerry and Patty Wetterling. At the time this story takes place, Jerry was a chiropractor and mm-hmm. Patty was a stay-at-home mom. Okay. Because four kids. <laughs> right. I can't imagine. You have to make so... It, there's that um, threshold where, like, you have to make enough money in order to be a stay-at-home mom. But then beyond that, you need, like, if you have four kids, like, how could you not be... You'd have to be so wealthy to pay for their care if you weren't mm-hmm. a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Or father or well, whatever at this point. But, like... Yeah. And also, like, they're pretty small town. Yeah. So I imagine, like, their house wasn't too expensive, but, like, finding decent daycare would have been pretty expensive. Right. That sort of stuff. We are in postulation land, but... (laughs) So the family lived in a cul-de-sac at the dead end of a long country road that led into the town of St. Joseph. 
Okay. The road was mostly cornfields and woods, and then closer to town, it becomes a few blocks of, blocks of houses. Okay. But they and... lived they lived past the cornfields and the woods, mm-hmm. like yeah. away from town. So I've got an image. I'll I'll definitely attach it to the Instagram post when we upload this. Mm-hmm. But it's got essentially the the road that they're on and like the route that they take the night this story takes place. Yeah, I see. I see. Yeah. So St. Joe, Minnesota was small, mostly farming, mm-hmm. town of about three thousand people. And you can see, you know, town starts and you've got like kind of a rural area, mm-hmm. kind of a suburb area. Yeah. A small town, classic small town where like actual houses happen. And then you've got this like clearly this is like fields and empty lots. Yeah. And then and then the, the this road. Mm-hmm. And you can see how the road just dead ends. Like, it doesn't yeah. go anywhere. Like shortly after their cul-de-sac, it's just over. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then it's just woods. So, basically, there is one entrance and one exit. So that's the that's the Wetterling family, and we're gonna we're gonna go to the bad part. Okay, October twenty second, nineteen eighty nine. So it was an abnormally warm Sunday for late October in Minnesota. It was like seventies. Oh wow! Yeah, and this is nineteen eighty nine. Like global warming wasn't doing what it is now. So, it was abnormally warm in Minnesota. Okay. And the kids didn't have school the next day, so they were just sort of out playing, doing their thing. hmm That morning, Jacob went fishing with his dad. Then they came home, and the family watched a football game. And then the family went ice skating. Aww. So, cute little family day. That night, Jerry and Patty, the parents, they went to a party at a friend's house in... Oh, God, I have it marked down somewhere. Let me look. It was Clearwater. So about Like 20... a town over? Mm-hmm. It was about... It was still the same county. It was Stearns County. Mm-hmm. But it was about 20, 30 minutes away from their home. Right. So like me to Roosevelt. Yes. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You being a, a small town person, like this this whole story, you'll be able to kind of... Oh, this is already making me uncomfortable. Like even just looking at Google Maps... <laughs> oh, you're going to hate it. The first thing I was thinking is like, oh... That's exactly where I would choose, like, the how the last cul-de-sac down the end of the road that's, like, on the far side of the cornfields where the wood starts. Mm-hmm. Like, not only would I choose that for a lot of other, like, privacy preferences, but I'm, I'm getting to the point in my life where I think about, you know, where I'd raise children and that kind of thing, and... I would pick the far end of the, of the neighborhood out by the woods, out alone. Mm-hmm. I would find, I would, I would feel safer with that. yeah well and like as a as a kid who like i no longer live in a small town obviously but when i was living in like buttfuck egypt wyoming being a kid that had like the entire world as your backyard it's a great thing that was so much fun and i had one next door neighbor with like 13 kids those were my playmates before (laughs) i moved to the valley like there were more kids obviously and more houses but like Leaving my grandparents' house to ride my bike to meet my friend in the middle of nowhere and then ride our bikes further to go to, like, our favorite canal to go swimming. Like, Mm -hmm. that was great. Mm -hmm. That was valuable. Yeah. Well, and this is back in the day when, like, that was totally status quo. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I I know that that's, like, 
I don't know. This this is probably like a big, big, big grand story that I'm ultimately going to try to tell throughout this podcast. But essentially how it goes from like, eh, whatever, kids, go fuck off, to whatever it is that we have now. Yeah. And the weird stranger danger in between. Mm-hmm. Like... So Even this is kind of aren't stranger kidnappings like incredibly rare, insanely rare. But this is one of the big stories that created that. Okay, there's there's stories that come before it, and I'll give like a really really f- like flash mm-hmm. background of like a couple of the stories while I'm telling this. Mm-hmm. But this is a this is a really, really, really impactful story for Stranger Danger as it was when we were growing up. Right. Because, so this is October 1989. So we were born I, one and two years later. I was a twinkle. Oh. I was not. <laughs> you were not a twinkle. I was a twinkle. <laughs> I was a twinkle. By definition. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's something I hadn't really considered. I guess you and I did grow up in the post-Stranger Danger world where we probably had a at least a slightly more unique experience than mm-hmm. other children did in our ability to have freedom in running through the fields and being left alone for hours on end without cell phones and just yeah. being trusted to explore. We lived in a weird between phase yeah. where we were definitely like in Stranger Danger but we were still given some freedom. Mm-hmm. Like Jamie, he's about Adam and Aaron and Jacob and all of these kids. He's about Jacob's age mm-hmm. now. And he would never be allowed to go out and do things on his own. <laughs> no, not right? even a little bit. Not, well, not really. Like mom's, mom's allowed him like to go play in the yard for a, a long time. By himself. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. There's some stuff that I did when I was his age no, that no he's walking, not allowed to do. No walking to the grocery store, going to the park by yourself. I kind of doubt it. You know? Yeah. I mean, and that's, I, I think that. Because Jamie's still 10, and I just can't imagine just letting the, him go to the park, yeah, you know? Yeah. It's not like he can't find his way back. It's just that it, like, scares the shit out of me to think about. Right. I was going to say, I think that's that's both unfortunate and completely understandable. Mm-hmm. I think about it, and I would want to grow up as a child, like I did, as one that could go and explore and kind of have that um, safe danger, right? Yeah. I think kids really need that sense of adventure, and they have shown that time in the woods helps kids develop problem solving skills and like a sense of autonomy that's really important Mm -hmm. but at the same time i think about you know myself having hypothetical children's and like shit no you're not going by yourself yeah (laughs) yeah well like this is such an unlikely story but because it's so unlikely it's terrifying so so yeah just like it's such a crazy story that would never really happen, but it did, and so it created just all of this sensational awfulness. Right. Okay, so, so October 22nd? October 22nd. Yep, so Jerry and Patty are at a party at a friend's house, and Jacob's best friend, Aaron Larson, comes mm-hmm. over for a sleepover. So, 
around 8 p.m., the mm-hmm. boys decide that they want to rent a movie. So uh, Jacob is at home with his brother, his younger siblings, Trevor and Carmen. Mm-hmm. And his friend Aaron. And so they decide they want to rent a movie, but that would require them to bike the mile into town to their local Tom Thumb, which is mm-hmm. also marked on that map. Yeah, I see that. I was wondering what that was. That's the path from their home to the Tom to, Thumb. Right. So Trevor called his parents. Patty said no, because uh, they had never done that before. And yeah. he asked to talk to dad. Oh, no. <laughs> and Jerry was mostly concerned of, like, them getting hit by a car, like, the, the visibility. Because, you know, when you live in kind of buttfuck Egypt, there's no street, street lights. lights. Yeah. And also there's no house lights, you know, around the, like, cornfields and stuff. Yeah. And so he was worried about visibility. So Trevor said, like, you know, Jacob's going to wear a reflective vest. I'll carry a flashlight. Like, it'll be fine. I promise. And Jerry said yes. Oh, no. And. Oh, that poor man in his later guilt. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And, like, apparently on the way home, Patty said something mean. Like, well, who said they could go? And I'm sure that they both regretted that. Oh, I'm sure. But, I mean, what are you going to do? So their their next-door neighbor, Rochelle Jerzak, she was a 14-year-old. She came over to watch the youngest sibling, Carmen. And Trevor and Jacob took their bikes, and Aaron took a scooter, and they left around 8.30 to... Hannah. I want to take away this paper. Sorry. No, you're all right. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they left around 8.30 to head down to the Tom Thumb. Now on the way into town, the boys heard some rustling in the cornfield. Mm-hmm. And it was probably around where I marked the abduction site. Okay. So across the street from that long, long driveway into the Rassier farm. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, it was wrestling in the corn. They didn't think anything of it. Right, especially if you live near a cornfield. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't jump every time the corn rustles. Damn. Yeah. Well, and also, like, you know, you you live in buttfuck Egypt and there's a thousand stray dogs. Could have been a dog. Also, raccoons love corn. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so they go into town, they get their movie, and they start back. Around 9, 9.30, 9-ish, they're, they're about halfway back. They're back around the abduction site. There's nothing on the road. It's just corn, woods, no lights. The moon hadn't even come up yet. And they're just walking their bikes, kind of taking their time, doing their thing. The only light they had was Trevor's flashlight. And as they get closer to the Rassier driveway, a man appears on the road. Mm. He was dressed entirely in black, and he appeared to have something covering his face. Possibly, like, nylons. You know, pantyhose. Yeah. And he was walking towards the boys. So the man tells the boys he has a gun. He made them take their bikes into the ditch and lie face down across from the driveway. 
he made he also made Trevor turn off his light. This okay. is so horrible. It's so horrible. So one by one, he asks for their ages. Trevor says he's 10. Aaron says he's 11. Jacob says he's 11. Uh, he tells Trevor to run into the woods as fast as he can or he'll shoot him. Then at some point, he grabs Aaron by the crotch. Jesus. So he gropes Aaron. And then he tells Aaron, run into the woods as fast as he can or I'll shoot. Trevor and Aaron did as they were told. And when they finally turned back around, Jacob and the man were gone. Wow. So. That's, that's the worst part. This story sucks. Um, so Trevor and Aaron run back to the Wetterling home. And they tell Rochelle about Jacob. And she calls her dad who then calls Jerry and Patty, and then he calls 911. And... Okay. What? What? I'm, so- I'm sorry. That... I mean, I guess she's a 14-year-old babysitter in, like, the late 70s, early 80s. Sorry, 14-year-old babysitter in the late 70s, early 80s. But who doesn't call 911 first if two of the three children you're watching come home and say that one of them was kidnapped? I mean, I don't really blame her. I, I do. I feel like that's ridiculous. Honestly, the the quickness with which the police show up is the least of the FUBARs in this case. Okay, yes, I believe that. I believe it might that. Have, I just don't... It might have made them slightly more likely to catch the abductor, but considering how much the police fucked up... I, I guess I just, I, I think about, again... The police again, could have driven past the abductor... And right, you're right. I don't know any of the other background information or anything. I get, I just think like babysitting 101. If one of the children is even supposedly abducted, even if those kids are just fucking with you, you're not going to get in trouble if you call the cops. But whatever. I we'll do move think on. that I do think that for a second they thought that it was a like high schooler playing a prank. I'm not sure if I. I don't entire. I don't blame Rochelle. I'm not going to blame Rochelle because she was a child and this case sucks. Oh, certainly not for anything that happened. <laughs> no, no. No, the only the only thing I would I would blame Rochelle I feel for you. is yeah. poor babysitting etiquette. Yeah. I I think I would have called 911, but I was raised in stranger danger. Right. And okay, she you're was right. Context. Kind of raised in stranger danger, but stranger danger wasn't what it was when we were growing. Right. Up. You're right. We have to take into consideration the social context mm-hmm. before I get all yeah. butthurt. All right. And we so can she move was on. like, and also like she lived next door, so she was like, "Dad, come over. I don't know what to do. This bad thing happened." Right. Okay. So that's that's over. totally valid. Yeah. So. Oh my god! And let me just tell you about this nine one one call. So I heard the nine one one call. Ugh. It, it it wasn't the worst nine one one call that I've ever heard, um, I've you know I've I've heard worse I've heard worse, but it was just it was kind of tragic. Mm-hmm. So at some point they put Trevor the the younger brother they put Trevor on the line, and the nine one one operator asks Trevor, "Can you describe the abductor?" and he starts with, he was sort of like a man. Oh, no. So sad. 
and and he eventually starts describing him in better detail but just the way that it starts i'm like oh my god this poor baby well it highlights how young and how innocent he is Mm mm-hmm no like (sighs) i barely remember being 10 i i don't remember any bad things from 10 i don't know man like fuck that just fuck this whole thing so so the police come immediately so it's between like 9 30 and 10 p.m they show up mm-hmm. and they begin their search and in the driveway across from the adu- abduction site they do find tire tracks and shoe prints okay but on the a, rest of your driveway it's a, it's a driveway so those aren't particularly strange and b the boys hadn't seen a car so it's noted but it's not like chased after don't you think though like looking at the rest of your driveway how it goes straight and then it has that bend and their house is back behind the trees somebody could park right at the apex of that bend and maybe not be seen from the road and also maybe not alert anybody on the farm oh easily easily and also, so, I mean, going to the Rassier driveway, um, that night, Dan Rassier, he, he lived with his parents, so it was Dan Rassier and his parents, but he was home alone. They were out of town or something. Mm-hmm. And around 9 p.m., he heard his dog barking, so he, you know, goes and looks out the window, and he saw a car come down his driveway and then turn around and drive back out. So that's oh, what he, shit. you know, that's what he saw at 9 p.m. around the same mm. time as the That's uh, really fitting. Yeah. Right? And the police come up around 10.30 p.m. So again, he hears the dog barking. He's probably asleep. I think he's a music teacher. Um, So he's probably one of those early bed folks. Mm-hmm. That's the life of a teacher. Right? <laughs> Says Sunshine. Getting in bed by 8.30 is it's <laughs> I love it. Uh, which is why I think in one of our episodes, it's a, you, you say, it's 9.26, it's time for bed. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, but um, Not just after so, 9, but 9.26. 9.26, yes. So, so it, it wakes Dan up. It's 10.30, it wakes Dan up. And... He he sees these people with their flashlights outside of his house, and he, he thinks somebody's coming to, like, steal from his woodpile, because he's got a huge-ass woodpile. I understand that fear. I I mean, as a, a country girl, I believe you understand that fear. As someone with a woodpile, I understand <laughs> that fear. As somebody with a That's... proper woodpile. <laughs> and, and I've seen his woodpile. It's a big old woodpile. <laughs> So, you know, he, he has this moment of like, all right, I'm going to approach him. And then he's like, oh, no, I don't. And, and he comes outside and he's like, okay, what's going on? And the police are like, we're looking for this boy, blah, blah, blah. And they have a short exchange, but they eventually just ended up leaving him alone for the rest of the night. Okay. And the police began like a search of the area, like the, the surrounding area, but they call off the search at 3 a.m. Right. Because it they want to like- continue in the daylight. There's a big chunk of woods going from the Rasser farm all the way down to this other main road. I don't know if this is a a modern uh, picture, but... That this is a, a modern picture. I a, took this from Google Maps. Okay. That's a big chunk of trees and dense growth to be, like, no offense Searching to the Rassers, the but, like, 
Well, they would definitely be my first uh, suspicion as far as, like, where the abduction happened and how much property they have and proper space to hide. That's what I was thinking, too, is, like, wouldn't this guy be your first dude? Like, wouldn't you start talking to him that night? Go into his house? Man home alone with no alibi because he's home alone with a hell of property on a farm in the woods. And when he sees his... You know, when he when he sees the car at 9 p.m., you know what he was doing? He was sorting his record collection. Oh, my God. Isn't that the most, like, oh, he did it alibi you've ever heard? Yeah, that's that's a suspicious, suspicious, presumably innocent man. Right. <laughs> well, fun fact, police didn't fucking look at this dude seriously until 2004. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so they basically clear him, and then another sheriff comes in and is like, it's this dude, and straight up ruin his life, even though they should have fucking, like... Just investigated him from the beginning? Investigate him. That night, it was his driveway. So, like, FUBAR number one, they say, oh, hey, Dan, we're just searching your yard, and then peace out? Oh, hey, Dan. We're just searching your yard across the street from where this boy was kidnapped. We're searching your forest. Feel free to go back to sleep. Did they search his house? They didn't search his house? No, not until 2004. Oh my god. Fucking idiot.com police. These guys sucked so much ass. I mean, I'm glad he didn't do it, but still, like... And when I was listening to the story, I was like, oh, it's Dan Rassier. You know? Yeah. Oh, I saw a car turn around in my driveway at 9 p.m. No, no. They don't clear him until literally the actual dude comes forward. And I just thought that sucks for Dan. Right? He's actually currently suing the county. Good. Well, I mean, (laughs) because that's the thing is it's not, it's, it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's not just about the victim and an abduction because that's not really true. It's about a lot of things. It becomes bigger than just the victim. Right. And I think we have to consider like, yeah. I mean, I guess your primary focus isn't going to be like, oh, who are we going to accuse and what's going to happen if we accuse them 20 or 30 years down the line. But it kind of does matter. Well, I mean, if you don't fuck up your case in the very beginning, you don't have to fuck it up again later, 15 years after (laughs) the fact. Right. All right. Let's move on. Tell me more. So... So that's kind of, that's, that's the beginning is, Mm -hmm. is, you know, they kind of are searching the area, but they call off the search at 3am. Okay. Which, okay, valid. Yeah. And I, I, they, they said, you know, we wanted to continue the search in the daylight and they come back at 8am, which is valid. But I was kind of wondering about that. Like, do you stop searching for a child? Because so again, according to this podcast, they, they looked up some statistics and Mm -hmm. Most children, if they are abducted, if they are going to die, most children will die within the first five hours. And after 24 hours, nearly every child is dead. So I've heard that statistic too. And I think that part of it, um, I think it depends, like my familiarity with searching has to do with uh, wilderness areas, which not only comes down to the uh, safety of the people conducting the search, but also comes down to how far uh, a criminal or whoever could 
feasibly travel in that amount of time. Like, mm-hmm. to a point you can reasonably sus- assess uh, how far or how late it's worth searching. Now, somewhere mm-hmm. like this, I feel like the validity for stopping is is pretty minimal. Uh, right. Because you're not you're not in a wilderness area. You know, you're in a wa- I mean, a they had mile. the woods. That they but didn't want to miss anything in the woods. I, I get not I get not missing evidence. It makes total sense to come back and sweep for additional evidence in the daylight. But as far but as to actually, stop at three a.m., it doesn't make sense. One unless you found the boy. Well, unless there were other factors like not enough of a search party or not enough supplies, not proper lighting. Like I, I don't know. I, I just think can't... it was literally just that it was too dark. Yeah, to me, that's not as valid because I could. I think from that perspective, woods in the middle or in the middle of or on the edge of a town. <sighs> I feel like you think you'd be searching the town, right? I feel like the only excuse for not continuing the search is like in the woods is is limit. The only excuse is limited to the woods, and it's right. we don't want to accidentally fuck up evidence by trampling right. through it because we can't see. But okay, so that... you stop searching in the woods, but you check the town. You check fucking Dan Rassier's house. Well, I was gonna say too. Um, not wanting to disturb evidence presupposes that you're not going to find the kid. As soon as yeah, finding the evidence is, comes before looking for the kid, you're, you're presupposing that this situation right, is already right. fucked and we need to preserve the evidence. So basically, they give up the search at 3 a.m. They've decided the boy's dead. I feel like that would yeah. be my perspective. Is that At that point, yeah. if you're giving up the search at 3 a.m., the difference between 3 a.m. to 8 a.m., that's... You're being lazy. You're giving up. <laughs> so we're counting this foobar number two. I feel like it's foobar number two. I'm count. I'm going to count it as foobar number two. Knowing the whole case, I'm counting it as foobar number two. Great. <laughs> I just, I didn't want to tell you the whole story first because I want to get your perspective. Right. And see if you also think it's a foobar. Being, being the judgmental asshole that I am. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Rochelle. Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> if I were a cop. I wouldn't feel good about stopping a search for an abducted 11-year-old boy at right? 3 a.m. and continuing it again at 8 a.m. Because it was dark. Because guess what? Fucking go and canvas the neighborhood. Wake up the children in their homes. Coffee and flashlights. Like, flashlights yeah. were a thing. Put on your big kid pants. Keep fucking looking. Yeah. No, and this is this is going to come up over and over again. This story is going to make you more mad at the police. No. You're going to be mad at the abductor. But it's going to make you almost as mad at the police. Frustrated with the police? Yeah. Yeah. Mad. Uh, Straight up mad. I'm mad at these cops. These cops fucked up. So, all right. So let's get into the search. Okay. So they, the the search becomes massive quick. The sheriff asked. Yes. Yeah. So the sheriff asked for the FBI. Um, They got helicopters in to like. You know, look for Jacob. And I think they got helicopters in that night. Mm-hmm. Or at least shortly after. Okay. Um, the government called in the National Guard. Over a hundred officers were assigned to this case. Holy shit. So it was a big... It was actually one of the biggest searches for a human being in American history. Wow. 
You know, like the Lindbergh baby exceeded it can sort I, of situation. Can I can I predict an element of the uh, fucked upness of the investigation? Yes. So my immediate suspicion: a hundred officers on one case. I wonder if the number of people assigned to the case in the beginning, like that high of a number, um, contributed to the fucked upery. Like, imagine, uh, just imagining that large of a number of law enforcement officers, like, communicating effectively with each other and not fucking things up. Like, I feel like you want a small contingent of actual law enforcement and then a large amount of, say, search and rescue operatives or people like that. Yeah. Um, the idea to me of a hundred cops working together in a way that doesn't create a clusterfuck especially on an important case where there's a lot of stress. That seems like a mistake. I would totally agree. I think that a lot of stuff got missed because everyone assumed that somebody had already gotten it. Right. Not only large numbers of people, but lack of communication. Yeah. Um, Pre- And- Pre-Snapchat. Pre-Snapchat. If these cops had had instant messenger on their phones- Maybe they would have Oh found my god. Them. But like the thing is, like, I'm involved in a handful of like online groups mm-hmm. where there I mean, once you get to a hundred people, even online communication is like, nope, this is too much. I'm not reading this. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, even when you've got it like it's compiled, it's right there. You could read it back. You could go back and read the whole thing. No, fuck it. Right. You probably <laughs> need at least twenty people in charge of making sure communication runs smoothly, which who knows if yeah. they had or not. Yeah, no, this was this was a fucking clusterfuck from the very beginning. Um, also, so in any investigation, it is crucial to talk to the neighbors immediately and thoroughly, as in you go back and you talk to them multiple times. Right, because your memory is super unreliable. Mm-hmm. So you need to get it immediately and then you need to double check it to make sure you're not misremembering things. Mm hmm. Or even just, did you remember anything else mm-hmm. after having just thought about it? In this case, they didn't do that. Mm, why? Because they suck. Okay. <laughs> so so some, some people were talked to that night. Some people were talked to within the next few days or weeks. And some people were never contacted. So, you know, back to that picture where you've got like, the houses, that's this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Some of the people on this street were contacted that night. Some were contacted within days So, and, and when we're saying this, some of these people in the neighborhood, were, are we referring to these two cul-de-sacs that are next to each other? Not the larger area closer to Tom Thumb? Are um, we just we're referring... talking about anybody that lived on or near this street that they took. Okay. That so the boys it... took. Okay, so it doesn't. So the that. cul-de-sacs and the neighborhood. Because there's two cul-de-sacs right there, and I don't know when they were, but it looks like there's at least you know three houses in each, maybe there four. Are, yeah. yeah, there's there's several houses in each. Um, and I don't know where everybody lived, who was or was not interviewed. Right, or how many of these houses have been built since then? There might not be an accurate representation of how many mm-hmm. people were not interviewed. <laughs> Although, so I've seen a I've seen a map that was like an older above ground map mm-hmm. and it's it's fairly similar okay the roads are all the same the houses are all similar 
So it's this map that I made is pretty close. Okay, okay. Also, quite a few of the people who were interviewed, especially if they were interviewed like within weeks instead mm-hmm. of like immediately, were interviewed by the FBI and never by the local police. So the police really dropped the ball. The police dropped the ball hard. So, again, this kind of goes back to, like, everybody assumed that somebody else had done it, and also too many too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying... It's yep. a way more concise way of saying what I was trying to get at. <laughs> uh, so, there was one neighbor. His name was Adam Klafaki. Klapaki? Klapaki. Uh, he had a story that the police never pursued. Really? Yeah. So Adam was a friend of Jacob's, and a lot of people actually said they looked similar. And I've seen pictures of them next to each other. They look similar. They're, mm-hmm. you know, young boys that have kind of that young boy face. Uh, five or six years prior to Jacob's abduction, Adam was playing with a ball in the fields around dusk so you know in his little cornfield neighborhood Mm -hmm. someone kicked the ball too hard and adam went and chased the ball into a ditch and as adam ran across the street someone grabbed him from behind and he remembers the man wore glasses and had a dark raspy voice and that's all he really remembered because he was like bear hugged Uh then his sister called him in for dinner and the man threw him down to the ground so that was six years prior about a month or two before Jacob's abduction. And, and wait, wait, sorry. Um, do, is there, do we know how old Adam would have been at that time? He would have been around nine or ten. When he was very hugged by the unknown uh, mm-hmm. man. Okay. So a little young for 11, mm-hmm. but not a ton younger than right, 11. Right, the same relative age. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry. Th- thank you. No, no, you're good. Now, about a month or two before Jacob was abducted, Adam was walking home from the Tom Thumb, like, same path, with a different friend, and a blue car sped towards them. And the, the car was going, like, 60, 70, like, it was going very fast. Hella fast and a little dirt on a and little so, car road. Mm-hmm. And so they jumped out of the way, but the car kept chasing them, so they ran into this friend's garage. And the man pulled into the driveway and turned on his brights. And Adam described this as essentially like a staring contest until they got so freaked out they ran into the house. And after Jacob was abducted. Did Adam say it was the same man? Or... Well, I mean, Adam wouldn't know. Well, no, no, the same man. Did he think it was the same man who had bear hugged him? I think he had assumed. Okay. And also, it makes sense to me. So after having heard this story, I kind of think that the man who abducted Jacob. Maybe thought he was abducting Adam. I think he might have been looking for Adam. I think he like, oh, I I got this hot, tiny child boy. Right. Fantasizing about him for a long Mm -hmm. time. Hence the how old are you? How old are you? Questions. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm like, I'm going to tell you some stuff next story. Not next story, but like next episode. Yeah. And just keep the how old are you in mind. Okay. Um, So... Oh, yeah. So after Jacob was abducted, Adam was like, oh, I should tell my story. So he has he has his dad take him to give a statement to the police and they never follow up. Okay. And so another boy of the relative of the same relative age 
experiencing some creepy pre-abduction level shit is not something worth following up on. Apparently. Hmm. Go figure. So Did not know. Would have assumed that would be vital information. I would argue that one of the biggest foobars in this case was police not listening to the kids. Dang. So. It's like Goonies so, in the worst way. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, years and years and years later, Adam doesn't really remember the facts as well. But mm-hmm. he looked back at his police report. And apparently, when he gave the police report, both Adam and his friend believed that they could pick the man out of a lineup. Wow. So, essentially, they could have used Adam and his friend to aid in the investigation, and they didn't. So, legally speaking, is there any issues with um, uh, an identification in a lineup by a minor being, like, less admissible than if they were an adult? Not really, no. Okay. I don't don't know these things, so. You would definitely, you know, if you were, like, the defense attorney, you would use the, like, unbelievability of a child as, like, a way to impeach the witness. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, like, it would just be something that you brought up to the jury. Yeah. It wouldn't be something that specifically made it inadmissible. Okay. It would not get the evidence thrown out of court. It would just be something you would use to try and poke holes in it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, just being a, like, non, what's the word I'm looking for? Reliable. Mm -hmm. Just being a non-reliable witness doesn't necessarily make you not allowed to speak. Okay, good. And and tell your story. So, so yeah, they absolutely could have. And apparently Adam Klopacki's, uh, like, this story is actually being used in Dan Rassier's case against the Stearns County sheriff's office great so i guess eventually (laughs) eventually someone listened (laughs) shit isn't that horrid i hate this story that's super horrid but it's a really good story to hear and so i don't want to not tell it so the police really quickly opened a opened the thing opened the whole story Mm -hmm. to national attention which leads to thousands of leads not not kidding fucking thousands so of leads. lead like, overload yes yeah like more From leads than all you can over reasonably assess and use mm-hmm. yeah like missouri is calling and kentucky is calling and then eventually all over the world and then these tips lead to more tips because yep. they release the information about a likely tip and then more people see something related so, to that tip there's very little, if any, filtering of the information tip-wise as far as what gets released to the public. Well, I mean, they filtered it if they found that it was reasonable enough, but their tips would lead to more tips. So they got a lead overload. So the biggest... Okay, I already said the biggest problem was not listening to the kids. But another biggest problem was they... They had too much information. Instead of instead of keeping it small and going to, like, the most likely sources... Right, getting the right information at the right time. They decided to open it up to anybody can have leads. And, and everybody can have leads. And we're going to search out all of these leads. So, three weeks after Jacob's abducted, Geraldo Rivera, 
Oh, Geraldo. <laughs> so, oh my god, you're not gonna like him right now. I feel like I mean, in the early 2000s something came up to make me not like him, but I don't remember what it was, so I'm down to not I, like him now. Yeah, so Geraldo Rivera essentially exploited sensational stories. Yes. So he told the stories and got them out, which was good. He was really just there for the exploitation of them. Bad. So Bad I kind Geraldo. of think he's a dickbag. Yes. But like I said, I, I remember in the early 2000s drawing the conclusion that I did not like him, but I couldn't remember why, because, you know, it's 2019. Yeah, <laughs> I do not remember why, other than as far as what I'm aware of him, he's very exploitative in his reporting. So yeah. he comes to the Wetterling household and he interviews Patty and Jerry in their own home. And this includes uh, having John Walsh appear as kind of a straight-talking other opinion. Do you know who John Walsh is? No. He's the America, or the FBI's most wanted guy. Oh, okay. Yep. And his story will actually be later in this series. Okay. Because his son, Adam Walsh, was kidnapped and murdered and that's mm. the reason he became the man that he became okay you know every every parent re responds in a different way when something horrible happens to their child and a lot of times they go on and create like a literal legacy right and i've seen that a lot on especially i mean nowadays you see that on social media all the time where like oh mm -hmm. my daughter died of a drug overdose or my kid died in a car accident like and then and now in. i am an advocate for blank yeah Yep. Which, like, I get. Yeah, totally. And I, I mean, like, it's one of those things where, like, it's really beautiful when tragedy blooms something more inspirational to better society as a whole. Yeah. But, so that's who's there. Geraldo Rivera, John Walsh, Patty Wetterling. Which is not to be confused with Joe Walsh. Who's Joe Walsh? Musician. Oh, okay. That's why um, I kind of paused and he said John Walsh. I was like, mm, do I know that? No, no, I don't know that. No, no. <laughs> so uh, I heard some of the dialogue from the show and uh, it was horrid. Oh, no. Geraldo was essentially asking Patty just really horrible questions like, do you have nightmares thinking about what could be happening to your son or what could like literally Straight up asked her and and John Walsh being the straight talking like person there would be like, oh, yeah, uh, most likely a sex offender came and raped your son and murdered him because that's what happens to kids. And like just this is three weeks after her son was abducted. Like, I wouldn't say that to her now. Go right? fuck yourself. That's definitely, wow, that's really taking advantage and really sensationalizing somebody's pain. That's, yeah, that's, wow. that's like intentionally trying to, not like it is, that's intentionally trying to put them in more pain so that you can get views. Yeah, no, it was disgusting. It was really horrible. So here, you know, in case you were wondering, why don't I like Geraldo Rivera? I, I will give you this. <laughs> right. And that's, I mean, 
Because he exploited people like, people's oh, pain. That's a long time ago, but that's not something that you do. That's, well, I don't, also, he continues to do it. Like, that's his thing. Well, and I don't feel like you do that as a mistake. That's not a mistake thing. That's a you're a bad person thing. I think that he was a greedy motherfucker that liked using exploitation to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And it made it so that the stories were told, but it also was fucking greedy and shitty. Yeah. So I wonder what I wonder. And this was horrible. I wonder what Patty thinks, though. Like, I wonder for her. Oh, she hates him. She thought it was horrible. I just wonder if on any level uh, people ever feel like it's worth it to to get their story out for the chance of whether it's soon enough to find their child or whether it's just a matter of maybe getting leads to have some sort of resolution like. Not that that behavior is okay, but just I wonder if people ever think, well, I still would have done it, right? Right. Would she still, knowing going into it, would she still have done it? Like, probably. Well, okay, so there's there's this terrible story that, you know, was also part of, I mean, God, I'm basically repeating in the Dark Podcast, but, um, so... You know, she's talking about having done the show and how afterwards she was angry. She threw off her mic. She went up to the porch and just started throwing stuff off the deck. And she she wrote this scathing letter to Geraldo Rivera about how, you know, he was just using them for their pain. But then she talked to her sister and her sister said, Patty, you get more, you attract more bees with honey. Then you do with vinegar. So Patty wrote him a thank you letter. Oh, dear God. Doesn't that make you want to vomit? It does. That's well, and I think that's some whatever I'm going to be. I was going to say not to be that person, but I'm going to be that person. That's some patriarchal bullshit. (laughs) Fuck the patriarchy. I mean, that's exactly what that is. That whole you attract more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. That's something that's only said to women. That's something right? that's only said to women when we're pissed off because there's yeah, this expectation like, be that we're nice, nice and it'll happen better to you. Blah, right. Blah, blah. If that was somebody's, if that was the father, they would have been like, oh yeah, fuck, go beat him up. Go yeah, kick right? his ass. That would have been the response. You're allowed to go and, and that would have been supported. Feel- yeah. But like, why? You're allowed to be mad about that. Like, right. Oh my God. That's so gross. But they hadn't found their son and they knew that. They needed every, every chance they could. Well, I mean, yeah, I get that. And I think that, you know, pride and feminism notwithstanding, like, shit, I can only imagine I would probably, I mean, I can only imagine being in that position and. Oh, yeah. Your, your pride would probably be the first of many things to be set aside. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I found hell. This story. I found hell. Uh, yeah. I, I, yep. Yeah. And this, this next bit that I tell you is literally, did I, did I tell you when I was researching this? Like, Sunshine, I think I found hell. You did. You did. Yeah. This is the story. Okay. So okay. after this, after me. the show, after the, the Geraldo Rivera show uh, is broadcast, they are getting so many tips that they have to open up a 24 hour phone line. And people start sending leads directly to the Wetterling home. Oh, you told me about this when you're doing your research. So the sheriff gave Patty and Jerry a special phone with a tape recorder for their home. And people were calling around the clock, like literally the middle of the night, with with 
everything from sightings, like we saw Jacob at a restaurant, we saw Jacob in the circus, to we have Jacob and putting some boy on the phone, which was not Jacob, none of these boys were Jacob, to I had a dream about where Jacob was, to psychics. Please tell me this led to some sort of precedent uh, or or policy change regarding such a horrible thing. I just don't understand how you can allocate, you know, I don't know if you said 100 officers or hundreds of officers, but how there can be that many people available for an initial search and you have to resort to having a tip line set up in the victim's home. I mean, obviously their right. son is more of a victim, but these people are victims. Like... Since when are victims? Oh yeah, no. These are, be, the family is obviously a victim. Since, since when are victims supposed to be um, involved in the procedure or the, the nuts and bolts right. of their own case? I felt like I thought that no, was I had not never heard of this. I thought that was not yeah. not only un- inhumane but not allowed. Yeah, no, I had never heard of something like this, and they basically became investigators on their son's case. So yeah, no, I had never heard of this happening before. I've never heard of this happening before. And, like, there were tons of people that were willing to help. I bet they could have literally set up a volunteer phone hotline service and had people that weren't the Wetterlings do this job. Right. And and they couldn't just not answer the phone. Well, of course because not. Because any tip could lead to their son. So this is hell. I've changed, I've changed my hell. You know how I was going to be a first year associate at the biggest law firm. (laughs) I've changed it. I'm going to have a missing child and I'm going to have this fucking hotline in my house. That's literally hell. That sounds like hell. I mean, no, no burning flesh and physical pain, but like, God, that torment is, is uh, unparalleled. I mean, I think just the knots in your stomach are... Burning alive from the inside? Yeah. Damn. It's it's the worst thing I've ever heard. It's horrible. And and all of the psychics who called, they, you know, they wanted something of Jacob's, a toy or a piece of clothing so that they could help with the case. And so they'd package up one more of Jacob's belonging and send it away. Mm. So they were, oh my God. Like, it makes me cry. Like, this case literally, it's so fucking tragic. I i can usually wrap my head around a case that's really horrible and get through it without getting emotional about it. But this case was different for me. Well, it's not only are we dealing with uh, crimes against children, but sort of the, the systematic emotional abuse of his parents by the legal system after the fact. Yeah. And basically because the, the Stearns County Sheriff's department sucked so bad, the Wetterlings were further victimized for another 27 years just by the situation. Dang. Yeah. And, and, and law enforcement checked out like a lot of these leads. Like, they started using the psychics within, like, the first month of the investigation. Okay. Right? Um, Doesn't that make you want to throw all of them into a pit? 
So you'll and bury them. You'll use psychics within the first month of an investigation, but not interview all of the neighbors, the real physical won't. neighbors who probably saw something or probably saw something and didn't know they saw something. But like, how could like somebody saw something? They saw yeah. something, right? Oh they yeah, saw something. Well, and there were people that were out. You know, that, that heard the boys riding by. Or don't listen to the children that say, hey, this creepy dude, like, bear hugged me from behind or chased me down yeah, in his car. Yeah, ask like, fucking Adam to come in and pick some people up from a lineup. Like, oh my god. Yeah, no, they fucked up so bad. And I honestly think the only good thing that we can take from this story is... After In the Dark podcast came out and and basically like the, the, the sheriff's department was like shamed into hiding and they got a new sheriff because of it. He came forward and was like, yeah, this case was foobard. So hopefully some sort of at least local legal reform or policy reform is happening to ensure that at the very least, a case will not get this royally fucked in that county. Yeah. Ugh, thank God. It's, Small victories, I guess. Yeah. It's... Ugh, it's horrible. So, the Wetterlings are helping the police with their son's case because the police can't do it themselves. Okay. Yep. So, uh... I'm going to I'm going to get to the real quick context of the era. Okay. In 1978, so a little over 10 years prior, mm-hmm. Eton Pats or mm-hmm. Eton Pats was kidnapped. Uh his body was never found. This he he was um I think he was kidnapped outside of a school bus in Manhattan. Okay. I'm getting this wrong, I'm sure. But his abduction launched the missing children movement. So, like, kids on milk cartons kind of thing? Uh, That was a couple years later. Okay. But he was one of the first kids to appear on a milk carton. Okay. In 1981, Adam Walsh was kidnapped. I just talked about him earlier with his dad. And I'm going to tell that story in more detail in a couple of episodes. Okay. Johnny Gosh was kidnapped in 1982. He was the first milk carton kid. Okay. Uh, Then we get the McMartin preschool trial that starts in 1983. Now, that's not a missing kid, but that's essentially... That was the satanic panic preschool trial that I told you about several episodes ago. I'm not remembering this. Oh, okay. God, that's so weird that you don't know the McMartin preschool trial. It was literally some kid came home and said, somebody touched me. And then they started like essentially inputting memories into all of the kids. Oh, I do remember this now. "Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did somebody touch you? Did somebody touch you? Did somebody touch you? Until they said, yes, somebody touched me. And they got the most ridiculous allegations like fetuses being flushed down the toilet which then led to a secret underground child sacrificing area. Like, but essentially it's important for the context of P 
people started getting real crazy about their child exploitation stories in the 80s. Okay. So this is when we start getting, you know, the seeds of stranger danger. Okay. Then the National Center for Missing Children for Missing and Exploited Children is established in 1984. And that's the that's the organization that really pushes for stranger danger. Okay. Then Jacob Wetterling is kidnapped in 1989. Super sensational case. Super fucking crazy case. And then Megan Conka is kidnapped in 1994. And she is also going to be... She's going to be the next story. Okay. Uh, after we're done with Jacob Wetterling. So... At some point the police rightfully start to believe that the abduction was sexually motivated. Patty Witterling asks if there's anything that could aid in the investigation. Mm-hmm. And there is. The police wanted to investigate every sex offender in the area. But at the time, there's no organization. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, if you're charged with a sex offense... It was in some random box in some local police station or courthouse. Right, kind no of like any other registry. crime where you get convicted, mm-hmm. you do your time, and then after that, it has to be investigated on a case-by-case basis in order to be found? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And at the time, like, there wasn't internet. Right. So you weren't in a database, you were in a box. Right. You were a physical yeah. file that had to be found. Yeah. So, so some states had actually already adopted sex offender registries, and they were literally just registries meant for the police. They were sex yeah. offender database cards for that state. It was just the database. Right. It, it, it kept track of what the sex offender was, what they did, where they lived. That it. Right. So, Patty pushed to have one uh, put in in Minnesota about a year after Jacob's abducted. But there was no national database. And sex offenders could easily cross state lines. Yeah, easily. And Patty is actually, I think currently, a chairperson sitting on National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Go Patty. And she was volunteering with them at the time. And she would get these phone calls that were like, Hey, my brother's getting out of prison soon. What state doesn't have a sex offender registry? The so fucked. Right? Yeah. So she was like, that's not cool. And she pushes for a national law to create a national database. Right. So, so far, this all sounds pretty good, right? Right. Like. Am I wrong? Is there some, is there a but? No, no. I mean, to be perfectly honest, me as like liberal, like CGS reform, like fucking social warrior, blah, blah, blah. I am all about having just a database for police to use when they're investigating a case. Right, that makes sense. I am. Why wouldn't there all be? All about it. Why yeah, why wouldn't there be? I love having databases. Right, public I love having I think public as- access is where that uh gets a little bit tricky, right? Ding ding ding. Okay, so in 1994 we get the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act which was enacted as part of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. So this is a Congress national situation. Okay. The idea was to create a registry, a national database, 
of sex offenders and their addresses for police use. Totally valid. The law, yeah, the law was initially intended as a non-public police tool. Just a registry for investigating sex crimes and crimes against children to make it a little easier. Megan Conka, in 1994, was murdered. I'm going to do a quick aside because we're going to do her case later. Okay. But she was kidnapped and raped and murdered by a sex offender. Oh, dear. How old was she? <sighs> she was young. She was like seven. Oh. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, in my personal opinion, this sex offender should not have been released when he was. I think he was a dangerous sex offender. Okay. So, so my issue with that case is the person specifically and mm-hmm. not the registry. Okay. He should not have been allowed out when he was. And his case sucks. And I will tell you all about it in like mm, two episodes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Megan Conka's murdered. The family comes forward, talks to Patty Wetterling. And Patty Wetterling couldn't take another grieving family and say no fuck off right because i mean they're the same you know it's my child your child like it's i feel her i totally right i can only imagine the sense of compassion that she would have for those people absolutely absolutely but they add the line law enforcement may notify the community upon the release of a violent offender which makes it possibly public. Which is so unfortunate. And that creates a precedent that gets more intense from here. Right. That's, that's the thing is living in the day and age that we do now, I can I can very easily see how that would lead to the slippery slope of just general public access. But like, realistically, in my mind, if somebody is so, if somebody is worth notifying the public about when they are released they shouldn't be released which i guess is what you were just saying like from your perspective this the the guy who murdered megan conka should have never been released yeah and to me it's like well okay so on the one hand like i'm gonna be totally honest we're sitting here talking about sex offender registry i was like oh maybe i should hop on google and like you know check out my neighborhood check your neighborhood i mean it's a fun (sighs) scary thing to do I've done it. But at the same time, it's and like... And blah, 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 personal stories. And yeah, it's it's just interesting feeling this internal conflict of feeling like, yes, I feel like I undeniably have the right to assess my safety and know about sex offenders in my area. But at the same time, mm-hmm. like, do I really? Because yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, so the thing is, crimes are public. You can find out if somebody has committed a crime. However, it's not that easy, you know? Right. You can't just Google somebody's name and find their criminal history. You got to go about it, you know? You got to actually work for it. Right. And a sex offender registry being kept personal, private tool for police is different than publishing it online where you can just go to the sex offender registry for your state and find all of the sex offenders that live near you. Right. And 
sex offender recidivism is actually the lowest rate of any crime. Oh, really? Yeah. It's about, for rape, recidivism is about 2.5%. Really? It is insanely low. Which you wouldn't think because of all of the, like, tough-on-crime rhetoric that you get around sex offenders. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely believe that there are some people that, like, just cannot be fixed. Right. And just will always be horrible. But I don't think that those people should be released. I think that there's a lot of people that we need to get out of prison. Like, fucking quit putting pot dealers in prison. Fuck off. Fuck off. But, like, you know, if you have killed more than one person, maybe you should be in prison forever. Probably, yeah. I'm cool with that. <laughs> you seem to have a, you seem to have a uh, pattern established. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I do believe that there are some people that might be too bad for society. And maybe they shouldn't be let back out in society. Yeah. But well, if you're if you're going to put some if you're going to make somebody serve their time and then you're going to say, "All right, you're ready to go back into society." You should probably treat them like they're ready to go back into society. Or they're not going to act like it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I get that. That makes sense on a level. Yeah. I think that, that fear is hard to uh pull back from though. It is. It's really hard. And and then adding to it, I think not just our current uh, legal climate, but anything I've grown up with, even even with even having like a law enforcement family, right? Like I don't identify that way mm-hmm. because I've seen other families who've had you know their their patriarchs be uh, uh, law enforcement and how much they're like, yeah, the thin blue line. And so I've never really identified that way because my family was never like that. Mm-hmm. But again, like to have somebody like, you know, the, the man I literally respect most on the planet was a cop for 25 years, mm-hmm. but I still grew up not trusting the police. And so to me, the, the, again, the, the presupposition with not needing access to the sex offender registry as like a private citizen is this idea that I can undoubtedly and undeniably trust the police to, to have this information and to filter it and to keep, you know, other people's information private from me, but to also protect me. Right. And I, I don't know that many people, myself included, who really have that level of trust. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, okay, so I have the weirdest cognitive dissonance constantly because I am, I'm not an anarchist. Because I'm a lawyer. You cannot be an anarchist and a lawyer. No, not at all. Because anarchist is literally like (laughs) no rules. Like it's literally a people are better off without rules. But I am really fucking liberal. And so there's a lot of times where like the way that I feel and my profession Mm -hmm. fight each other. Right. I believe that. And I spent I spent all of my life not trusting police either. And then I started working with them. And I learned that there are some police that, like, they were the quarterback and they still want to bully people. And that's how they became a cop. Yeah. And then there are some police that want to protect society and make the world a better place. 
And that's how they became a cop. Well, and, and not to get down this rabbit hole, but that was something, um, I, I forget exactly when it took place, but it's something my grandpa, he went through this phase like a couple years ago where he was frequently talking about his time as a cop. But one of his biggest complaints was a shift that he saw in at least Salt Lake County Police Department where the system that they used to hire people drastically shifted. Mm-hmm. That literally the the metric and the standard that they used for seeking out new recruits changed in such a way so that they were literally seeking out more of those I was the high school quarterback, didn't make it to college football, I have aggression issues, I want to be a tough guy, I want to carry a gun so I can feel good about myself, that that their standard for who they were employing actually shifted to favor that kind of mentality versus when my grandpa got hired, you know, he has a lot of fun stories about people who, you know, were were like kind of Robin Hood, like bad guys on the right side of the law. Like they <laughs> they were probably questionable characters, but really wanted to do the right thing. And 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 that people were in that position. They, they were more reasonable people who were in that position because they wanted to help, not because they wanted to feel like a big swinging dick with a gun. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, essentially making it so that the registry goes back to just being a police tool requires a lot more trust from police than I necessarily think police in like the way that they are now deserve. Yes. And I don't know what the solution to that is other than some kind of change in the expectations and like checks and balances of police. Right. More accountability and a change in hiring practices would make me feel a lot better about, uh, not having access to the sex offender registry. <laughs> right. Which I think would be a huge difference in this case. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. More accountability and a change in hiring practices. Yep. Yeah. Totally. And I mean, so like one of my problems, I have a lot of problems with the registry. And one of my, oh God, should I tell my own story? I've been struggling with whether I should so tell my story. So I, I was wondering about that because I think that it's, um... I think that it is helpful, right? I think that it humanizes the registry a lot and also Mm -hmm. validates its existence because I think, I think at the same time, I think on the one hand, like perhaps had you been the type of person who would have looked that individual up and been like, oh, fuck. Dude, no, I knew he was a, he was a sex offender. Oh, right. Yep. Mm. Perhaps had your parents looked it up and known that. (gasps) I think they might've, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, think that it, I think Cameron knew. I think I think Cameron knew. I think that it humanizes it and validates it at the same time, which is a really I think it's a valuable perspective. I think it comes down to whether or not you want that known. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to go into <sighs> All right. All right, everybody. So here's the reason this story triggered me so much. When I was 17, I started dating a sex offender. His story, now this is his story, this is what he told me, and he is TM, my evil ex, so take it with a grain of salt, but I have no real reason to disbelieve this, 
when he was 20, he lost his virginity to a 14-year-old girl, which, you know, as an adult who is now an adult, I absolutely think is inappropriate, but I don't know. He, he also was abused as a child. I don't know. It's a thing. That's, that's his story. And according to him, she, when, when they broke up, she got two of her friends, one was 14 and one was 13, to press charges against him. Okay. And I don't think I've actually gone into detail with you about this story, have I? Mm -mm. You can tell from the fact that I'm not making eye contact. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hard, it's a hard story for me to tell. So he was, you know, he was a 20 year old. He was not from Utah. He, he was in a new state and his defense attorney was overburdened and probably didn't believe him because he was some fucking punk kid who honestly has a really shitty attitude. (laughs) And, um, so he pled guilty to get reduced charges, which means that he pled guilty to sex with a minor. Or statutory rape. um, It was unlawful intercourse with a minor and lewdness in front of a minor and something something with a child. Because in Utah, the age of consent starts at 14 and anything 13 and below is considered a, like, child. Cannot fuck. Okay. Right? So she, I, I must have missed something then. Did she choose to press charges or did her parents? She, yes. She, she chose to press. Well, it was her and her parents. So the, the story Basically, goes that she after, was a jilted ex. Right. The story goes that her after, parents. Right. From his perspective. He, mm-hmm. She was a jilted from ex. From his perspective. And after they broke up, then she decided to press charges. So kind of like regret. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now... So I was 17 when I started seeing him and he was 31, which means that I am technically a victim of statutory rape. (sighs) God, I hate that. Okay. Um, so he technically recidivized with me Mm -hmm. and Knowing what I know now, I don't think that she was just a jilted ex. Right. I do think that even if she had been sexually active before he had, it is inappropriate for a 20-year-old to have sex with a 14-year-old. Right. I think, and we've talked about... You know, obviously we've been friends for a long time and this is an issue that we've discussed uh, in in depth to an extent. But I think that even if you're like, for psychological reasons, developmentally delayed as an adult, there's still a perceptible difference between a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old, even with the... And then, and then especially, you know, going down to 13. A 20 year old and a 14 year old. Yeah. Um, you know, again, even if you have psychological reasons for feeling developmentally stalled and, and even considering the whole like, oh, girls mature faster than boys. 
you know, I you've been I'm, through more. You're in a different place. It's not appropriate. I'm I'm in my you know, granted my late twenties, but I you know I'm in my twenties and I work with teenage girls, and nobody either in their rational or in their right mind or nobody telling the truth would say that that's that it's just different. There's not. That's not an adult. That's not somebody with a fully developed prefrontal cortex who can make their mm-hmm. own decisions. Yeah. They're they're obviously yeah. immature. They're obviously children. Yeah. Well, and so having been through what I've been through, I have paid very close attention to that throughout my life. And when I was 20, I was in college. I was no longer in high school. And I remember thinking... Dude, an 18-year-old that's still in high school is too young for me. Right. Yeah. And even having the perspective of knowing that you're, you know, of relatively sound mind and, and rational and all mm-hmm. of those things, even even with those caveats, it's like, oh my God, the difference is stark. Yeah. No, it's hugely different. And I'm not even, I am not yet at, as old as he was. Wow. Yeah. And it has been years. It's been years. This almost seems like a like, I mean, thank God. And it's I'm sure it's been a decade. No. It has. I am twenty eight. Ten years ago it was no longer statutory rape. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. So when I was seventeen I started dating a thirty one year old. And there, there were other things that he did later in our relationship. We dated for about three years. Um, and there were other things that that he did that I would consider sexual assault mm-hmm. uh, that I'm not going to get into. But essentially, he was a registered sex offender and he did reoffend with me. And Whether think, or not you were under the impression that you were consenting. Whether, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, I don't know. I guess, I don't know. can I ask you a question? It's different and it's the same. Yeah, go ahead. I, I'd say, I guess, so I know that from your perspective, when you were in the relationship, there would have been no denying that you were consenting, at mm-hmm. least to a point. I know there were some things that happened that, you know, are aside from that. That was later. That was later. But that from your perspective, having been in that situation... Would you say that, given that age gap, that you were capable of consenting? Like, could a 17-year-old really realistically consent to a sexual relationship with a 30-year-old and have that be something that should be respected? I don't think so. Now that I'm older. So, and, and so the reason I say that is because I've spent a lot of time researching abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you know, law and criminology and sociology. And also what your friends have been through and you have been through. And also what, yeah, and also what my family's been through and what I've been through. And looking back on what I went through, that was absolutely an abusive relationship. And I realized that quickly after leaving it. Mm -hmm. And looking back on the very beginning, he was preying on me. Like, he met me when I was at a very weak point. And he he found me in that weakened state. It was like, it was like blood in the water. 
Well, didn't you guys meet at a park at night when you were sneaking away from your house to smoke a cigarette? We met at a coffee shop oh. at night. And we started talking and he said nice things to me. And then stuff moved faster than it should have. And uh, I don't know. I I wouldn't have pressed charges then mm-hmm. because I was 17 and I was consenting and fuck off. And I will not press charges now, but that is 800% because what's going to happen? Right. You know? It's not because you don't think you should morally. It's because... It's because... It might not leave anywhere. It would have been appropriate for him to... For for me to press charges against him. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't have. And now I just want to have my life. Right. You don't want that in your life. I don't... I don't want to deal with that. And I know, I know that after we broke up, he started dating somebody that was even younger than me. That's terrible. So, well, and I, so I remember, thing. I remember a drunken, uh, you know, let's watch HBO night where we ended up looking him and my most recent ex up just to be on the safe side mm-hmm. and coming to the conclusion that like, oh, yet again, he is worth somebody with somebody, uh, younger. Yeah. So, (sighs) the thing is, my shitty ex was a sex offender that re-offended, and the sex offender registry didn't do anything. Right, that didn't help you at all? Because he wasn't jumping out of the bushes raping the neighbor's children. Right, he wasn't a violent predatory offender, he was psychologically predatory. Exactly. And so that's the reason that I have spent so much time thinking about the sex offender registry. And I know that I have some baggage Mm -hmm. with it because of that past. And I continue to grapple with it. And if anybody feels the need to contact me about it, just be respectful. Yeah. And I will gladly engage. If somebody wants to come up and be an asshole, you can go fuck yourself into the moon. But if you feel the need to contact me about it, I'm happy to talk. But that's that's the reason that I am so interested in the sex offender registry. And I think that my case is a pro and a con. Because he had a hard time finding work. He had a hard time finding and maintaining housing. And I don't think that that made him any less likely to reoffend. Right. The limitations that were put on him. Well, and I mean, here's another thing that we can delve into if we're going to, I mean, we already have, we've begun our, we've begun our sex offender registry tangent, mm-hmm. whether it's whatever, to the extent that it's in the show. But I think that especially if somebody's uh, sexual offenses are from a psychological perspective or not perspective, but you know, even though some some aggressive things and violent things did happen, uh, his offense seems more based on an error. Like it's it's. I mean, I guess everybody has psychological problems if they're an offender. But when you're mentally and emotionally abusive, and when it's your own developmental shit that gets, you know, if you've been victimized and that leads to you becoming a perpetrator. 
I feel mm-hmm. like having those limitations as far as being able to find work and find housing and all of those things that are so integral to feeling psychologically stable. Like, who knows? Perhaps if he had been able to um, find a house and find a job and become a productive member of society rather than somebody who is stuck on the fringes, maybe that would have helped him work through his shit so at least he would not recidivize. Right. Well, I know that, so he had a wife before me. Oh, I forgot about that. Who was younger mm-hmm. than him, but, but not was an adult. Yeah. yeah. It was like uh, he was in his late 20s and she was in her early 20s yeah. kind of a situation. Reasonable. It, was, it wasn't disgustingly inappropriate. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and he met me when he was in the middle of a divorce He was in the middle of trying to find a new home. He was, he was currently working, but he was fired shortly after I met him. He was arguably in an emotionally vulnerable position as well. Not as a means to excuse his actions, but something I've definitely learned working in like the, the psychology field or therapy field is that like Mm -hmm. when you're under stress, we, we call them avoidances at my work. It's it's risky or inappropriate behavior that you engage in as a means for coping with your problems. Mm-hmm. So, of course, somebody with a past of sexual abuse would be likely to re-engage in that behavior when they're under a lot of stress. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you know, that was honestly a really big problem for me as the, I guess, abused partner in this relationship was that... To this day, I have never met another person who has had a worse hand dealt to them. Right. You have a lot of empathy for his situation. Yeah. Yeah. He full on had a shitty life. And so I had a hard time blaming him for things. And that's the reason I've become like zero tolerance of using your mental illness as an excuse for being a dick. Right. Because it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse is the thing. And I don't know. I, I do my best to... To talk about this in a logical way, um, it's just that when my personal situation comes up, uh, it, it's just hard to escape the emotionalness of it. Right. Be- because it's a really difficult thing to re-experience by telling the story. Right. I don't think you should ever be asked to remove the emotion from your own. <laughs> I think, I mean, again, tying it back to something more rational, I think that that's why we have the legal system and that's why victims should not be involved in the prosecution of their own case. Right. Because it's an unreasonable expectation to ask for somebody to not have that emotional charge with their own, mm-hmm. with their with their own victimization. Like, that's not reasonable. Yeah. And, and so I guess basically I'm saying, like, I'm doing my best to, like, continue to talk about this in a rational way. It's just every once in a while my my reactions get a little stunted because I am emotional about it. Which is valid. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where I go back to like talking about me talking to my defense attorney friend. So I remember a while back she is, she is my favorite. She is like the best defense attorney. She is so good at stuff and she's everywhere. She is at, like, I started running into her at law school because she was at every fucking law school function. And now that I'm an adult lawyer, I run into her at every adult lawyer function. I have no idea how she has the energy to live the life that she lives, but she is the best person ever, ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's my introduction to Kate. 
And she, I remember once upon a time hearing her say something about how she didn't like the sex offender registry. Mm-hmm. And so I hit her up the other day and I was like, hey, please hey, elaborate like, on could that. You... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted, you know, because of this, I was, I was like, could you, you know, give me some more experienced reasons why you feel the way you do about the registry? And the easiest way to explain it is, you know, from what she said, it's, it's, it shouldn't be a one size fits all. You know, a, a, a 20 year old and a 17 year old shouldn't be the same as a fifth, as a 50 year old and a nine year old. Or really anyone, regardless of the age of the offender, it's not the same. It, even though, you know, in light of what we just discussed, uh, personal uh, history-wise, mm-hmm. realistically, somebody who has a non-violent offense with somebody like 15 and older mm-hmm. probably should not be treated the same as somebody who has an offense, violent or otherwise, with somebody younger than that. Yeah. Yeah, well, and like, and I, and, and to this day, I still stand by that. I remember as a 17 year old being really offended by the concept of statutory rape, because you end up on the same registry as somebody who violently rapes a toddler. Right. And I may not have consented the way a sane adult consenter of you may not have been capable of a level of consent that you definitely believed you were when you were 17 and any sexually active teenager would believe that they're capable of consenting to any sexually active teenager is going to say i can consent because i can say yes they're not going to look into the multitude of other reasons why they might be consenting to sexual intercourse they're not right well, and also, as a 17-year-old, I believe that I was capable of consenting to sex. With an adult. I just... I think 17-year-olds... Couldn't... I, I, I just... I think that it was inappropriate to consent to sex with a 31-year-old. Right, that's what I was about to say, actually. Is that... But a 17-year-old having sex with a 17-year-old right, is fine. That's exactly where I was going, is I'm like, I definitely Teenagers think that... listening to this, bone people of your own age. Right? That's the thing, is I definitely <laughs> think that whether or not it's unwise, right, is from, from a uh, STD, pregnancy, emotional health standpoint... I do think that teenagers are capable of consenting to sex with each other. And I am pro reasonable flexibility within the laws as far as like, oh, you're 17 and boned a 19 year old. Well, fuck a 17 year old girl and a 19 year old boy are the same thing. Like your parents should not be able to get mad if he, uh, if you break up with him or he breaks up with you or if they even find out about it and decide to ruin his life, that shouldn't be a thing. Yeah. Well, and like, I think, you know, looking back on my own life, I think that at 17, I was at a, you know, considering like the sex education that I received Mm -hmm. and the emotional health training that I received in that sex education, I think at 17, I was emotionally prepared to consent to sex. With another teenager. Yeah. I wasn't emotionally prepared to consent to sex with a 31-year-old. Well, and I think that all to a point, too, that has almost less to do with your ability to consent and with the inherent uh, uncouthness of a 31 year old consenting to sex with a minor that, 
No, it was it was not a matter of I fucked up. It was a matter of I was preyed upon. Yeah. 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 And as soon as that enters into the equation, no matter it doesn't matter how rational you are or how well educated you are or how self-possessed you are, your ability to consent is nullified. Yeah. But I I mean, you know, like even outside of that example, I gave a different example today that was I think a really good example of Everybody ends up on the same registry, and it's inappropriate. Uh, yes, yes. You were just barely going Teenagers who send their partner's nudes are guilty of sending and receiving child porn, and they end up on the same registry as the 50-year-old. Horny teenagers sending each other pictures of their naked bodies should not be on the same registry as a violent rapist. Yeah. And, like, Patty Wetterling, she's actually come forward more recently- Against the sex offender registry, especially where it is now. Oh, that's interesting. Because of because of these ridiculous situations where teenagers are ending up on the registry, or nonviolent offenders are ending up on the registry. Well, and, I mean, in addition to that, fucking over people's lives who are at worst guilty of adolescent mistakes. Um, it's it ties back to the beginning of this story when we were talking about of uh. A, a, a just an, an overabundance of information and how that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't imagine that <laughs> having a list of all of the teenage boys who have ever gotten caught sending dick pics is really going to help anybody uh, uh, solve and prosecute a case of a missing child or a rapist or anything like that. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. How is knowing that TJ likes to send pics of his boner gonna help anybody? Mm-hmm. Well, and, like, that's the funny thing, is that, like, we live in the age of information, and we live in the age of Snapchat and fucking phones with cameras on them, and so teenagers sending nudes to each other is, like, the era we live in. Right, it's small and, like, potatoes. don't. It's child porn. Stop it. But also, don't put somebody on the registry for sending their partner a dick pic. I'm gonna bleep this out, but remember- Yes. He sent me a dick pic when we were in high school. Creepy, but not a sex offender, necessarily. Right. That's harassment, not child porn. And also, remember- By the way, for anyone listening, same person. Um... (laughs) Do you remember, okay, do you remember the time that we put him in my trunk? Uh, yeah, and he got naked. And he got naked. <laughs> he got naked. Like, he got naked in my trunk. like revenge. And we thought we it was hilarious, him. so we kept taking pictures because we had the little ski right, hole. Right, right. He, car. out of revenge, got naked and shoved his clothes through the ski hole. And uh-huh. then we were so like, he was oh, naked in my you. trunk. naked in the trunk and sent your clothes to the ski hole. We're going to take your picture. Yeah, and so there's that amazing picture of his middle finger coming out of the ski well, hole. Well, we know he's naked. And that's hilarious. But I remember, and this is when I was young, it's all been deleted, I don't have child porn, I promise. But I do remember going through those pictures, and I found one where I could straight up see the dick. So, and and here's this thing too, which I think comes down to like, sort of bubble-wrapped culture and nanny state tyranny and all of those things. And I, I don't think that, I don't think that like, sexual harassment should be permissible or encouraged. But I also think that being 
overly sanctified about everything and overly protected about everything doesn't help anybody. And this whole like uh, shame about your body and about nudity and everything. If there's nudity, it's all of a sudden harassment or it's all of a sudden child porn or all of these things. Like I think that I do genuinely believe that it's healthy and normal for teenagers to get naked as a means for fucking with each other. Okay, so remember the fucking Weird Okay game? Yeah! My favorite story of those was a different friend, for anybody who's listening. He, uh, he did the okay right by his crotch. Right by his dick, yeah. But he pulled his dick out. <laughs> I remember that! I don't- Bam! <laughs> he won! <laughs> and I think that that's, um, I too, I think as far as feeling- as far as feeling safe and feeling victimized as like a, a teenage girl, I might be out on a limb here, but I would rather not feel terrorized or victimized by my male friends' dongs. I would much rather grow up in a culture where as long as it's not being presented to me in a hypersexualized, unwelcome context, like... I, I feel much more uh, equal and much more safe in an environment where if my male, like, that, that I want to live in a world, not where it happens all the time, but where if a male buddy of mine is drunk and fucking around and shows his dong because it's funny, that it can just be funny. Right. Genitals are weird and kind of funny. And I want exactly. that to be okay. I want yeah. I want it to be okay for naked people to be funny and not not always be offensive or inappropriate or a sexual assault. Because it's not. The human yeah, body isn't like inherently sexual. Streaking is Right. A, a, is a lewdness charge or a public indecency a charge. A flopping dong is somebody funny. Peeing. It's not inherently sexual. A man, yeah. a man being naked is not inherently a sexual assault, and a woman being naked is not inherently a sexual invitation. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's broken about our society, is that, like, just the access to a body is so taboo. Right. And I think that that does more harm to children than just... Being like, here's the naked body. It's I fine. agree. That's something that my mom and I actually talk about a lot because I was one of those kids that um, frequently ran around naked. Yeah. How many kids run around well, naked? And that not only that, but that like, you know, at, at a certain time she had to kind of wrestle with the decision about when to teach me about inappropriate versus appropriate nudity. Because, yeah. you know, if I got hot or decided my shirt was uncomfortable at the grocery store, I'd be like, fuck this. <laughs> and for her, you know, we were talking about this later and she was like, you know, it was really hard for me because I didn't want to make you ashamed or sexualize your body prematurely. But I knew that there were predators out there and that yeah. still you as a nine year old girl, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to be like at a public pool and be like, I'm hot as fuck. I'm taking my shirt off. Like that should be okay. But that you have to deal with the reality of children being sexualized and that um, clothing, like <laughs> whatever. I'm pro kids wearing whatever kind of swimsuits they want, but a <laughs> child wearing a bikini is inherently more sexualized than a child going naked at the pool. 
Right. It's kind of that, like, Lolita factor. Yeah, exactly. And that, that that's something that my mom always had a problem with, is she was like, whatever, don't wear clothes at home, feel comfortable with your body, like, all these things. But anything that's, like, a baby version of something that an adult woman would wear to be sexy, that's not appropriate. That's the problem. Yeah. And I kind of agree with that, where I, I thought, you know, when I was a teenager, I kind of felt like she was being ridiculous. And now I look at it, and I'm like, no, it's not appropriate. Like, I see my younger cousins growing up, and I'm like, get that Victoria's Secret juicy sweatpants off your ass. Like, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. Like, no. So... It's a slippery slope. Yeah. It's hard to navigate. I mean, like, so doing doing criminology, sociology in college, I felt like I wrote this as my thesis statement in, like, every fucking paper. Mm-hmm. It was, blah, 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 here's the problem. We need to change this law, but we can't just change this law. We need to change this thing about society. Well, I think it's because, I mean, and I might not state this in the most concise way, but at a certain point, uh, when laws become an everyday way of life, they shape the way society functions. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, I do think it's very clear which came first. And it's, it's the precedent that's set by the expectation of the law does change the way people perceive social react, social actions. Mm hmm. I mean, it's kind of like how we have this sex offender registry and now everybody thinks that sex offenses are the highest recidivism rate when they're actually the lowest. Or or just like what we were talking about with teenagers, how now that we have the sex offender registry and, and, and thank God people are speaking up about things that are sexual assault and that are harassment. Like, that's great. Yes, 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 yes. I want to be supportive of the victims. But at the same time... I like, just don't want to victimize again, people that aren't victims. There is a difference between... Uh, you know, somebody inappropriately showing you their penis because they're aroused by that and your friend flashing your dong because penises are gross and funny. Right. And I, I don't know how to huge... write the laws to differentiate between those two things, but I think it's really mm-hmm. important that as a society we understand the difference. Yeah. Well, I think that's where the society needs to change, not the laws. Because right. I think that psychologically speaking, there is a gigantic difference in how... You feel when you see a fucking streaker run by versus when somebody approaches you at the park wearing a trench coat and flashes his genitalia at you. Right. And, but I there think... There is a huge difference. And in one situation, it's literally that you are meant to be victimized. Right. And, but I think that's the problem, though, is, is realistically, Alex, how likely do you think it is that, uh, that society will change before the law or vice versa? Like, how no how could a law actually get changed? It seems like both need to happen. One needs to happen in order to facilitate the other. And I don't see one happening before the other. <laughs> I was talking to some friends about the registry today because I, you know, was talking about the subject that I was researching. Because when you become a podcaster, you become crazy. Er. Er. Than you yes. are. Again, same thing with a teacher. I always want to call people and talk about. I always want to call people and talk about my lesson plans and be like, "This is what I think they need to know." Like, right. But one of my friends basically said, "I think that the fall of humanity will happen before the CGS system in the U.S. becomes humane." 
And I don't want to say that that's going to happen. It's one of those things but, that you don't want to think is true and that you really want to hope isn't true and that you really want to push for mm-hmm. not being true, but that like deep down might be true. Yeah. Like, I think we need to, everyone needs to live their lives every day as though that's not true and like push for justice and mm-hmm. push for change. Yeah. But realistically understand that that might be true. So I guess the moral the moral of the story is I don't I don't know the solution. I don't have planned out the point by point how to make the world a better mm-hmm. place. But I have the problem outlined and I have some ideas and I think we should get the discussion going and move for reform mm-hmm. what, and, and whatever that means to fix it so i guess i just want to reframe the way we think about things because especially in the like true crime podcasting community i've noticed that um this community is very tough on crime mm-hmm. and i'm not saying we should have compassion for terrible people I mean, okay, I do think that there should be compassion always. Yeah. I'm saying, and this is, so this is the Patty Wetterling thing. Her goal became, we need to make it so that fewer children are harmed. And by making these people's lives harder, we're not doing that. Exactly. So, so what I'm saying is we need to stop. Just thinking with the reactionary, this horrible thing happened, we need to punish and start thinking of actual solutions. Right, because realistically, regardless of whether or not somebody deserves the punishment they're getting, that's not the question here. The question here is, is that punishment really helping to solve the problem? Yeah. We, We live in a society where it's not does does this person deserve the punishment? Because if it's, does the person deserve the punishment, then serial killers would be getting drawn and quartered. And that's not a thing that we're down with. Right. You're right. Arguably somebody who is like, there's some pretty heinous crimes that have happened that from a moralistic standpoint, they probably could deserve such a treatment as being drawn and quartered. But if we're a tit for tat society, then some people should be getting boiled. But we're we're not. We're not supposed to be anyway. We're supposed to be a society we're, of rational thinking, solve the problem, investigate the issue, find a rational solution. Yeah. How do we make this less likely to happen again? How do we make fewer victims, less serious crimes, like less less suffering? How do we reduce suffering? Right. And, I think that's what it comes down I to. Don't I don't think... really necessarily from a super liberal hippie standpoint, I don't necessarily give two shits about reducing the amount of crimes committed because there can always be new papers pushed and new I's dotted and T's crossed saying that this, this, and this are illegal. What I care about is exactly what you said. It's reducing suffering. It's reducing victimization. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a big difference. Right. Well, and ideally the laws ultimately come to reflect what causes suffering and not just what we morally think is wrong. I feel like. No, it's not. 
And that's a completely different story for yes. a completely different episode. <laughs> so, I don't know. To end this horrible episode, do you have a happy thing? Mm. I told you to think of something. I know. I realized this morning I woke up and I was like, fuck, I didn't think of anything happy, but... I have a happy thing. What's your happy thing? You want me to go first? Yes. You know what I'm happy about? Hmm. I loved taking that trip with Caroline down to see you this weekend. Oh, I'm happy about that too. That was the best thing ever because I got to spend a bunch of time with Caroline and I, even though we live in the same fucking valley, we never see each other. I think that's called being an adult. Like there's so many memes on Facebook that are like, oh, being friends as an adult is saying like, we'll catch up next weekend like 50 times. (laughs) Right. But we won't. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, but you know, being able to see Caroline, which is great. Because I don't talk to her, like, just chatty. I have to, like, get together with her to chat. Because she's the kind of person that responds with a lowercase letter K. So so that was awesome. And I loved seeing your house. And I'm so proud of you. Aww. And it was just such a good weekend. So that's what I'm happy about. I think that I'm honestly still in a... In a daze over the whole situation. I don't... I was talking to my mom about this earlier. I don't... I think that... It will take at least a year for me to get to the point where this feels real and normal and like something that I actually made happen. And so I think that despite everything, you know, any little ups and downs or, you know, I think that I'm still just like feeling immensely grateful that somehow I'm in the place in my life where I am. Yeah. Like when, when we were talking and you and I and Caroline were here and... We were talking about the right to be, uh, not to be wealthy, but the right to be comfortable. And when mm-hmm. you when you brought up the fact that we were all, you know, none of us were really wealthy and it wasn't like none of us had to worry about money, but that we were all like stable and secure and happy and not living in shitty situations with shitty people. And I think that's what I'm really happy about is that we're all, you know... Real life is a thing. We all have ups and downs, but I'm just so happy that after all this time, like all of us are in, you know, not like relationships are the most important thing, but we're all in stable relationships and have good jobs and have a nice place to call home, even if we're not like the Kardashians. <laughs> right. So that's yeah, what I'm happy I about. I think that's good. No, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think we needed a, a happy thing to end this <laughs> Yeah, for sure. God. Uh, sorry, everyone. This episode got real heavy, but I told you it would. And also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Palm Pitch Pod. Palm Pitch Pod. Can... Palm Pitch Pod. <laughs> and you can email us at uh, palmpitchpod at gmail.com. And that's it. Okay, love you, bye. Love you, bye.